Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. It is the 13th of May already. Um, in the studio, you have myself, Idwin. Rob. And Jess. Yay, we have the full team together. I, I always love <laughs> three voices in the studio. <laughs> we do. <laughs> um, um, Jess, you've been away for like two weeks. How's, how's your time away been? What have you been up to? <laughs> Um, well, actually, I've had now, I've had time to relax. So let's just talk about the happy times now. Um, I have actually, I don't know whether you guys have heard of it. It's called, the book is called Dunes. They're making it into a movie soon. It's like a sci-fi film. I'm really into Star Wars and that sort of thing. So it's right up my alley. But this is, I just really wanted to tell this to our listeners also, but this is a fun fact. Um, I was researching Star Wars while I was um, reading this book and Princess Leia's iconic whirl hair. Do you guys, you guys are familiar with it? Yeah. I love how you call it whirl hair instead of like buns. (laughs) No. It's actually not buns. It's a whirl. So says the whirl of Star Wars. Anyway. (laughs) Um, But it's actually culturally, it actually, so it's culturally appropriated the Hopi tribe who are a Native American tribes people who actually say who they are, their science backs this up also. They are the first inhabitants of America. Um, I thought this actually tied it because I listened to your channel thought last week, Edwin, oh, yeah. about um, the Hollywood um, representation. I thought it was very interesting that oh, there's this very deep symbolisms of cultural appropriation everywhere mm. in Hollywood. So, yeah, it's not really what I've been doing this week, but I thought I'd... No, yeah, good tie-in. That's yeah. a good synchronisation because my partner's just started going on about Dune and he's very much like jumps into an obsession. And so it's been like waking up to hearing about it, going to sleep to hearing about it. Like all of a sudden this sci-fi novel's just become my life. So <laughs> I'm so sorry. You can't even get away from it, even on the radio. I can't even escape it in like no. I thought it was really safe territory. <laughs> um, what about you? Oh, look. Oh, I've got a fun story. Um, so I'm currently writing a role-playing game. That's right, like D&D. Uh, game for uh, Regency Regency era Pride and Prejudice. So this has come out of the fact that my friends and I are like looking for a way to connect over Zoom and we all love Jane Austen. So I was like, well, why don't we, why don't we write this up into some ridiculous actual game? We're going to try and take, like stay away from, you know, the romancing and that sort of thing. But at the same time, characters are built off from things like wit, romance, sensibility. It's just, it's been a ridiculous sort of thing. And it's been a great history dive because I've got to like dive into the Regency period, which can I just say, like utterly ridiculous. Like the yeah. British history is so much fun to research because it's ridiculous. And you're like, <laughs> like who 
did that happen like yeah yeah it's exactly like that it's just like oh that that was another stupid social moron. <laughs> like it's a lot of that so uh yeah that's what i've been doing my my downtime <laughs> no that's incredibly yeah. constructive maybe we'll find in a year that we'll be having you on for an interview to discuss the the, the world trend that is who knows Austin or whatever, whatever you decide to call it Absolutely. Oh, we've we've got a name, but it's a bit explicit, so I won't say it on the show. Oh, that makes it sound way more exciting than it is. Let's just keep it calm here. Anyway, anyway. I'm excited. <laughs> um, so that's been my week, Rob. You've been just under the pump, haven't you? So not not much. Yeah, staying alive. It's been a busy week for me, but I've had a few days to just sort of chill out. I've actually been doing a bit of um like interview like research. I've just been watching a whole bunch of interviews by different, you know quote-unquote legendary or whatever you want quote-unquote legendary interviewers mm. um there's just been interesting like observing techniques and how people do yeah. interviews and get people to um i guess talk about things in ways they wouldn't normally talk about it's just been mm. interesting kind of like observing that mm. um and i like every sort of like pause it i'm like so how did they get to that point and how did they you know jump through those steps so it's been a little interesting exercise well i heard it's almost hear- like an art form it is absolutely it really is, and I, I hope to hear. I hope to hear some of that reflected in our coming up interviews. Um, I, it was weird you were saying that too. I was watching some interviews last night of like uh, figures like Simone de Beauvoir and Hannah Arendt, uh, Arendt, um, and it was really fascinating to watch the disconnect between, uh, especially with because they're both highly feminist figures. Also, mm. it's really interesting to though Hannah doesn't subscribe to that, so I shouldn't lob her in with it. But it's really interesting to watch the dynamic between the interviewer because the men are so disconnected from the women's ideas that it's this it's this constant like like it's not even insulting or misogynistic it's just like befuddlement sheer confusion so it's interesting about how we bridge between different perspectives and like some of their answers that they give are so cryptic because they're not speaking the same language so i don't know it's as you said jess it really is an art form it is, mm. yeah, and it's funny that you should mention Simone because I have watched her interviews before as well, and it's just like it's it's hilarious almost. Yeah, it's yeah. just like it's 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 comedic value just watching because males males especially back then and maybe now um, don't actually know how to approach uh, approach women mm. with those mindsets. So yeah, they just don't know how to approach women. Full stop. No. So it's, it's in general. <laughs> yeah, it's quite fascinating yeah. to watch. Um, coming up on the show today, we'll be having we're going to be having tram thoughts, which I'm very excited about. Jess is <laughs> debuting again. Uh, with her new, we'll also have alternative news, and then we'll also be listening to some features from activism at the margins. So that was the conference I went back to in February. We still have some fantastic speakers, so I'll be announcing them and their projects a little further on in the show. And we might have a few other like side specials, especially during like COVID nineteen. We're trying to shake it up a bit, so we might have a few. I don't know, slightly different from norm pieces of audio to listen to today but all should be kind of cool so that's that's us sh- what our show is going to look like but right now we're going to jump into alternative news some folks know about it some don't some will learn to shout it some won't but sooner or later baby here's a ditty say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now one two nitty-gritty now
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and we've got some alternative news coming up. So the deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon over the past 12 months has actually reached the highest level since tracking began in 2007. And so recent data has indicated that 406 kilometres of forest have been lost just in the month of April. And so this caps off 12 months of deforestation, that is currently 40% higher than the same time a year ago. And all of this is following a period of lower deforestation in the Amazon between 2004 and 2013, where estimates from that time are indicating that this period actually avoided greenhouse gas emissions equivalent to taking all American cars, cars off the road for three years. And so the Brazilian Amazon makes up two thirds of the entire rainforest and has seen a sharp uptake in deforestation since President Bolsonaro was elected as the Brazilian president. And so since his January 2019 election, there has been a consistent rollback in environmental regulations, reduced budgets for environmental law enforcement, and has diminished the role of scientists in the government. He's also been really openly calling for deforestation as well. Looking ahead, the deforestation combined with a pretty unusually dry conditions is setting the region for quite an active fire season. And there was much discussion of that in the past year. And it looks like the forecast is that that will continue. And as these shifts occur, there is a lot of concern that the entire biome is really starting to reach a tipping point where large swathes of the wet rainforest will develop into dry tropical woodlands. And so if this happens, it could shift the intertropical convergence zone northwards, which would result in much drier conditions across Latin America's major urban areas and agricultural regions. So it's a worrying trend that's very much being accelerated, uh, given the current political climate over in Brazil. But yeah. that's my alternative news for this week. But it also reminds me of like some of the stuff that's been going on further, like closer to home and just some of the New South Wales and Victorian logging that we're seeing. And it's... <sighs> I, it's dumbstrucking, you know. Yeah. Mm. It's yeah, and that um, mainstream media also holds a really important sort of place with that and informing the public. And when people are informed the wrong or only one biased view of that, it can also obviously skewer the public's view of that and just keeps tensions even higher. Thanks for that, Rob. Something that I was really interested in this week um, that I found, scientists are considering indoor ultraviolet light to zap coronavirus in the air. Um, this, to me, sounded all so very sci-fi-ish. Um, the idea of eradicating pathogens in the air is like bringing sunlight indoors. Um, this is to save like restaurants, stores or classrooms from infection. Um, this research actually does come out of Harvard Medical School. Um, sunlight disinfectants, as they've been called, are effective at getting rid of airborne pathogens. Um, the way in which ultraviolet light is able to kill pathogens is possible by the light mangling with genetic material that disallows the pathogens to reproduce. Portable ultraviolet units are actually already being used to sterilise hospital rooms and public transportation um, centres around the world but only in unoccupied spaces. The design of the units would be similar to those of a fluorescent light. Um, several schools were used to experiment this in the US with the number of cases of common diseases reduced after installation after five years. 
Um, downside of this is uh, the installation fees are ridiculously high and running the lights is not sustainable. Um, but with further research, this could possibly be a promising research to help control diseases while our society works to prevent cases like this happening again. Um, also, this idea of light killing pathogens has actually carried on onto Indonesia in a more traditional sense. Culturally, it is a norm to be sunshine in Indonesia. Um, but there has been a rise of sunbathing even so far as lying on train tracks and other public spaces and going bare-shirted in police and soldier units with the purpose of keeping out COVID. Um, research has shown that there is a link between low vitamin D levels and the COVID mortality rate. So I thought that was very interesting, that whole airborne light pathogen killing. It's especially, <laughs> it's especially odd to hear after, you know, the um, My Kitchen rules celebrity chef oh my god yes the lamp yeah the lamp yeah so it's just like i don't know i'm just i'm hearing these light things i'm like okay it's it's backed up this time but like just some of the misinformation like aside from that just some of the misinformation that's been spread around this is just astounding to track and i mean oh especially an update with the my kitchen rules guy he's actually he's gotten deeper trouble which deserved (laughs) Um, i was reading something the other day which was suggesting yeah he has a harsher punishment than just a slap on the wrist but we'll see where that oh, goes. Yeah, I would hope so too. But mm. that's another topic for another day. <laughs> um, another important piece of news that needs to be mentioned this week and always um, is the case of Ahmad Arbery, who was murdered by a former white police officer and his son. Prior to the arrest, an inaccurate report was given that Mr Arbery was killed after committing a burglary by the homeowner, who was the former policeman. Um, the two white men were only found guilty after a video leaked of the pair confronting Mr. Arbery and indefinitely murdering him. Um, these kinds of cases are not unusual in societies around the world, as we all know, between the white majority and black or minority communities. Um, what also caught my attention and what we were talking about before um, about this case was the power of social media and people able to attempt to do good in ways that could be spreading awareness online, um, enabling the public to make a stand against the wrongdoing of power, oppression and brutality and to fight for justice. But Idwin, we were, and Rob, we were having a conversation before. Did you want to mention that, Idwin, what we were chatting about before? Yeah, there's been a, quite a bit of a division over this um, particular social media campaign because there's been a lot mm. of uh, African-American community coming out and saying you're spreading traumatic images and documenting something which is traumatic for the community. So I think there's mm. definitely got to be raised awareness over that. There was also a wider point, which is kind of like, you know, every time we hear of an, a, a murder like this in America, which, mm. I mean, we're so used to hearing as a, a constant news item, unfortunately, it's very easy to kind of make that the new poster boy to kind of think about it in the moment and then, you know, skip, put it to ten, yeah. page 10 news. So there's been a really large outcry following this death of, or sorry, I should say this murder, um, that it's not really, it's it's not fair of especially white communities to... Hmm. <sighs> I suppose, outpour grief and anger and rage over this without actually creating systemic change within their own actions, lives yeah. and media posting. And it's, it's a good reminder that, you know, are we doing enough within our conversations to be bringing up these issues on a, a constant basis? Cause that's what's required unless to actually see any form transformative change. So it's, it's been quite an interesting thing to watch on social media as well, because, um, and I don't mean, it's been quite interesting to watch on social media because social media has taken quite different approaches. Uh, there's been people who've been going, yep, social media campaigning. There've been people saying it's inappropriate and we need to limit and focus what we are 
what we are messaging. And I suppose that just comes with, yeah, the wider yeah. understanding of the power of social media. Yeah, and I, th- I agree with you. I think it's just there's a big difference between posting about it and just getting the message around versus actually, like you said, making a systematic change. And it is quite, it is disheartening for a lot of communities because like you said, yeah, maybe next week all these people that are posting it on their stories or posts uh, may just forget about it and won't do anything to change. But awareness is awareness and I guess we just need to wait and see how social media develops in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been interesting as well. Um, looking at, I was looking at a site that I follow, a social media page called It's Not a Compliment, which is mm-hmm. an Australian Instagram page which basically collates women's um, experiences with sexual harassment. So the sort yeah. of, you know, uh, that toxic masculinity culture. Um, I definitely suggest p- for people to check it out because it does have a collection of really powerful stories and anecdotes and a really great cross-section of basically showing the or evidencing I suppose, just the stuff. But they were putting out a post about, you know, uh, coronavirus does not validate your racism. And it was another, it was just another reminder. I mean, I'm sure we've all witnessed it of the increased racism towards the Asian community in this time. And it was making the point of like lifting restrictions. We need to be really making sure that we call it out and check it out. I know there's been a few cases where I've heard, especially dog whistly comments. I think coronavirus has made, has seen a real rise in those sorts of really quiet subtle racisms or insidious racism and it was just making the point that we need to be obviously calling that out and not allowing people to get away with these really subtle racisms so that was just a ongoing point that I wanted to bring up because I think it's um obviously you know really relevant especially with the right raising of restrictions throughout Australia and it's like we just don't want to see us kick back to that definitely well maybe we can put that um Instagram page into their rundown for people to check out if they want now that's a really good idea. You see, I don't think along yeah. social media lines, so you know, I'm glad you pointed that one. I'm like, I'm glad you are thinking because <laughs> I'm not. No. no, it's fine. It's fine. We got we yeah <laughs> teamwork. All right, we're going to uh, end wrap up alternative news here. We're going to jump into a few songs and uh, community service announcement, and be back with you after that. Have you heard it on the news about this They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
shadow shows no emotion So what's even the fuss but the face Why your boy cast a darker picture Of the red-handed act he's gonna whisper Look, blood, I'm sorry cause I know you got my back He was running, I couldn't think I had to get out of that Not long ago you were miming to the shook ones Now this really is part two cause you're the shook one Hand you the tool as you question your friendship Has man like you gonna make me a convict Level of a felon when I'm done nothing wrong Turn on my hands but I don't know where it's from Oh, You got blood on your hands but you don't know where it's from mm, You better run when you hear the sirens coming When you hear the sirens coming Better run when you hear the sirens coming Cause they will be coming for you listening to 3CR. Next up, we have some audio from the Activism at the Margins conference that I attended back in February. This is a speech by Elena Spazovska uh, called Women in the Colourful Revolution, Bringing Down Autocratic and Populist Government Through Solidarity and Creativity. Within her speech, Elena discusses the 2016 Macedonian protests where citizens took to the streets to protest against the current president, George Ivanov, and the government led by the interim prime minister, Emil Dmitriev at that time. Within this speech, uh, Eleanor looks at the role of women within the movement as well as civil disruption. Um, so I'll pass it over to Eleanor now. So in, um, in 2015, it was the I protest movement in which they demanded change of governments and um, um, legal prosecution of those accused of, or those politicians accused of the crimes. And colorful revolution happened in 2016 when the president, um, proposed abolition of all politicians that were accused of the crimes, and that sparked ma- ma- massive outrage. And there were other things, but I don't have time to explain. So, one of the interesting things, and that was unseen before in Macedonia, was uh, that it was very ethnically diverse, and people from um, different ethnic groups worked together in change of government. This, is, this was very significant, considering it is a very ethnically divided country. So what happened there was people said, this government goes against the interest of all of us, and we need to work together. What was also very interesting is that women were leaders of this movement. Uh, it was unprecedented to see so many women on the streets as leaders of the movement, as activists, as active members of that. If we see political arena, that doesn't happen. So that was really interesting for me, and that's why I decided to do this research. So 
one of the, the first question was that I had was whether really were really women leaders of this movement or that was the photos that we saw in the world as a propaganda. The participants in this research were unequivocal in the fact that, it, yes, it really was a women's re revolution. And that um, uh, women were not only the face of the anti-government women's, but they were the driving force behind it. So they were, um, they played all kinds of roles um, in the revolution. So um, why was that so? One of the questions was how come that women were the driving forces be, uh, behind all of these protests. So one of the reasons was because women were already involved in the in, um, informal sector, and um, they were leaders of many NGOs, many civil society groups, so it came natural that they organized the protest against the government. The other reason was that women were particularly targeted by the Vimoro government uh, because of that tendency to go to traditional values, the, the changes in the law and everything, so they feel specifically concerned about what happens with the country and they really wanted the change. And um, yes, and they just thought that they had to do something for the future of the country and the future of their children, which is what they mentioned as well. So um, they just had to do it. Um, so this is one of my participants, Angela, and you can see how defiant she is. Like you can see their posture. It was like, we have nothing to lose, we are going for it. So what she says is, uh, the first line of defense, we were women. It was spontaneous. Nobody could break us or come between us. All of us, women in the front lines, we had already been part of some form of, of, some form of movement. There were men as well, but most of them were there to support us. Uh, I was very proud. You can see by my attitude on the photos. I don't have the same attitude now as the one I had during the protest uh, in front of police, police cordons, guards, etc. Their number and force was disproportionately greater. But women, we were brave, strong, and defiant. So that's another of my participants, and you can see how, <laughs> how um, angry she was. And that was, um, uh, that was when the, um, the president announced the abolition of the politician. And she goes, um, uh, we were expecting, uh, so in 2015, we saw with the bombs what was happening. We knew that this was happening, so we were expecting that something would change. In 2016, when we saw there was not going to be a change, like something snapped at them. So she goes, um, uh, when I heard that they would be pardoned, my tolerance was zero and my revolt was maximum. That is why I'm in front lines. I don't care of any consequence I might have from that. And she actually admitted that she was actually kicking the police officer. So that, again, goes against the idea that uh, women are more peaceful. So what, are some, what were some of the obstacles? So those were their motivation to become. What were some of the obstacles? The double burden and patriarchal division of labor in the home. That was mentioned as an obstacle because, um, so as one of the participants said, let's face it, in Macedonia, women go to work and do all the work at home. So many women had to go to work, make dinner, pick up children from school, etc., and then come to protest. They were clearly exhausted, but they still came every day at six. A lack of support from family and employees. I was able to, to be active in, so, in the social movements because I have a very uh, liberal and understanding family. Many of my friends didn't join because their family were afraid of repercussions. Um, even since, um, since that photo of me uh, in the colorful revolution became public, everything changed. They sent me to work in a different city. The colleagues started avoiding me. I knew it was a psychological and political pressure to silence me. And another one, who is the director, all of her plays were taken down from the program. 
Um, so there were also gender-based threats and violence. Uh, I was very afraid that somebody may do something to me. I felt like I was being followed all the time. All of us activists in the first line were humiliated, blamed of being immoral, like being escorts or being lesbians, etc. This was to discredit us so that we are not perceived as symbols of this resistance. Men were never subject to similar scrutiny. Um, there is a photo of me throwing a neck to a guy who attacked a woman during the protest. As I was throwing my skirt lifted up and, I showed, and it showed uh, I had a tear in my tights. After that, all government porters showed that photo and claimed that I went to protest in underwear. I received serious threats of violence. That's because I was a leader of the colorful revolution and because my boyfriend is Albanian. So this were, that was like a whole propaganda to silence them and to uh, dissuade them from going to the protest. So uh, what was interesting about women in this movement is that um, when things got violent, and there were a couple of uh, situations where things got violent, like the protesters became violent and then the police um, responded to violence, is that it was women that came with creative solutions to kind of smooth things over. So, and uh, although they were leaders, they kept saying that that was something that came instinctively that they didn't think about it. And that was in the, and in uh, I protest, which is the movement in 2015, uh, they, they drew on traditional um, gender roles. So, um, they, they were hugging police officers, they were giving them flowers, making references to their roles as mothers, or, um, or they were creating some activities and strategy relying on the idea that we, police officers will not be as violent to women. And that's why some, many times when they pushed the police, were, were, women were doing that because they were assuming that. So, or they were engaging in con conversation with police officer. So trying to convince him to, to become part of the Resistance. So, this is one. This this photo went around the world, everywhere. So, this is Jasmina, and um, so she was saying that uh, that was that was one of the most violent days. So, it was the things were really tense. So, she was first trying to kind of make jokes with them, trying to convince them to join them, saying we are fighting for you as well. We don't mind. Uh, but then, um, as the police officer became agitated, then um, she had to be creative, so just put the lipstick, and then somebody took the photo, and then the, took, the photo took the world. And then lips, the red lipstick became kind of symbol of the women in the revolution. So they all put lipstick to annoy the police officers <laughs> even more. Um, the what was different about the Colorful Revolution uh, in 2016 is that um, it was women that came up with the nonviolent strategies, but they did not draw on traditional gender roles. In fact, they were the ones that were behind most of the guerrilla actions. When we learned about the abolition of the, from the president, people got so angry. It was difficult to, to contain that anger and to stop the violence when we got inside his office and people started breaking things. But we knew that they are stronger than us and they will continue to beat us and arrest us. We needed to be smart and come up with a strategy that will allow us to express our anger and, det and determination nonviolently. And uh, Irena is the one that came up with the color strategy. So I was one of the, uh, those who believe that there is no force that is going to attack the state and win. I'm not a soldier. I'm a theater director. I communicate through the language of art. I fought so hard to prove to other people in the movement who believe that they needed to respond with the violence uh, that we cannot win with violence but with creativity. So that's I Irena here and she was the leader. She came up with the idea that uh, to throw paint on, um, on government um, on institution, on public institution, which was also, which were part of uh, 2000, uh, Skopje um, 2014. Um, 
the colors are symbolic, are symbolic language. This became a, mod, a modus operandi through which all of us who were against the regime understood each other. The moment we threw the first balloon with paint, uh, we knew that there is no coming back and that we are going uh, with the nonviolent option as, as opposed to the violent option. People thought, if this is possible, everything is possible. So they painted this arc that the government created and says, our art is for free. So that was one of the first things when all the people say, well, if they're, going to be, if they're going to be able to throw paint on this like, very precious government things, that we can do, the, the regime is going to fall. Um, so, and then you can see that it's women who mostly use the paint guns and through paint. Um, uh, and the, the whole city was colorful. It was actually quite beautiful to see. Um, and that's, the police officers got painted as well. So that's Irena as well, and they're writing Colorful Revolution. Um, so um, what was interesting about the Colorful Revolution was that it was um, horizontal leadership and democratic decision-making. Um, and um, it was a new model of actually making decisions in Macedonia. Um, nobody imposed their authority. We made decisions based on best delivered argumentation. Um, throwing colors of government institution as a resistance to government policies. They said we were damaging government buildings. Those buildings are not Vamaros. It is people's money they went into the ugly facades of 2014 project. I felt so good and liberated when I threw paint and when I hit the target. And uh, colors as an expression of diversity, solidarity, and, and um, equality. So there was a particular reason behind so many colors because um, the colorful revolution included many diverse segments in society. People from different ethnic groups and political views, different ages, uh, etc. It was the first time that members of the LGBT community officially displayed their flags as an integral part of the revolution. So, and um, they were successful in, okay, they had it was not only them, okay, they had help from international factors, um, the political parties, especially the major opposition party was always part of the, the organization, so, but the, they, what they said was that they had to support one party and they supported like the central left party because they had to be, when the government would fall, they had to be somebody to come after. Um, but what happened was the typical thing when it's a civil society movement wins, wins a revolution, and then the political party comes to, comes to power. So, um, uh, so this and many other opposition parties were part of organization of the protests, but they would, not have, um, would, they would not have come to power if it wasn't for the informal sector. Uh, they made promises to us, but we are still waiting to, for them to fulfill them. Okay, so some things happen. Um, for example, there is more freedom of speech, people are more open to criticizing, um, medias are not so strongly held by um, the political parties, they changed, um, they, they returned the same um, abortion laws before, um, there are some kind of tendencies to do things better, but many of the, the hopes that they had are completely shattered. Um, so. Um, gender equality and LGBT rights remain very low on the government agenda. It's interesting that the government has only three female uh, ministers, and that's the same as the previous one. Uh, this is not what we were expecting. So they were expecting that when the new government would come, they would be, have a clear. And the mistake they made as well was that while they were in the revolution, they were saying, okay, our goal now is to just re overturn this government and we think about the rest later. So there were no official rules of what to do afterwards. 
Um, so the political parties are the one that maintain the idea that politics is men business. All of the rest is nice, they kind of support us, take photos with us, claim that, claim that women are the drivers of social changes, but that, that trust in women and the belief that women will improve the country, which really existed during the protest, got lost. If it got lost, means that probably was never genuine. So yes, so there was like when I did the, the when I um, conducted the interviews, there was a general disillusion and despair among many activists because it's like, okay, where to go next from here? When the system is this way, nothing we can do can change it. Um, so the, the solidarity and unity among the activists. Um, dissolved after the success of the revolution. So one, one of the reasons why the revolution was so successful is because they were united. There was a like, very strong solidarity. So they had this um, motto, one for all, all for one. So if one would go arrested, everybody would go to the police. So if one get, would get in trouble of some sort, everybody would go. And there was like a really strong friendship. And what they say means the most would be the friendship with all these people. What happened after the the revolution was successful, is that um, some of the activists entered the parliament under Sudasama, um, which meant that they kind of had to compromise and follow the political agenda. Others got other type of decision-making positions, so they got something out of being, it's it considered they got something out of being part of the revolution. And the rest, as Angela, say, Angela says, we remain loyal to our activist principle and didn't want to compromise. But that meant that there was a huge rift in between all these people that were part of different movement and they actually won the battle. And the most important was the justice. So during the revolution, the, most, um, the loudest slogan was no justice, no peace. So they were saying there will never be a peace if those that have committed crime, especially political leaders that have committed crime, would not be brought to justice. So um, as one of the good things that happened was that the special prosecution was formed to prosecute cases of government abuse of power and all, all kinds of uh, irregularities and criminal activities. Um, that all kind of went front of the water. So um, the prime minister escaped the country, now lives in Hungary. <laughs> Many of the ones who were accused of crime um, somehow got acquitted or some, something happened. Even one of the activists from the Colorful Revolution that entered parliament actually proposed a bill to pardon them. Um, so it's only very small players that are still in courts. Probably nothing is going to happen. The special, the presser prose the special prosecutor was caught in a corruption <laughs> scandal, uh, which was very interesting. So um, yes, so one of the most discouraging thing was that there, is no, there was no justice and with no justice there is no peace. And um, just to conclude, I, um, I understand peace as um, a very broad term that is based on equality, on justice, accountability, respect, inclusiveness, and um, none of that has been accomplished. So um, I think it's very important to continue the fight, although some, many of the activists have been are tired understandably, disillusion, but it's very important to remain loyal to the principle and keep pushing. And um, I tend to do that with my research. <laughs> Thank you. And that was Elena Spazovska. 
in her speech, women in the colourful revolution, bringing down autocratic and populist government through solidarity and creativity, as I said, recorded earlier at Activism at the Margins back in February. We will have information about this speech uh, in our rundown, provided later today. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free.
before we get into the context of my tram thought this week, I thought I'd put a question to you both straight up. Um, what do you like most about live interactions with art, music or performance? Mm. <laughs> straight off the bat. Straight off the I bat. Think, <laughs> I think for me it's it's the non-verbal qualities of the music. It's like when you when you see a performer live, there's a certain sort of there's there's something kind of unique about seeing an artist in their element and seeing like feeling like their presence and their energy. That is something that you just can't really replicate on an album. Like I've talked about it this previous weeks when I've seen some of my favorite artists, mm-hmm. and it's like it's it's a you know it's an experience. It's a really emotional and powerful experience, and that's just something I find really hard to replicate in um in digital form. I would say. Mm. Okay. Mm. I suppose like I've been to I I spend quite a lot of time at folk festivals, and I just love the. I think there's certain sounds, yeah, you can't get from just listening, you know, online or something like that. There's a really lovely physical presence. It's lovely to be near someone even mm. if that's a bit weird. Um, I, it sounds weird, but it's also the physicalization of it. Like when you're watching a screen, you're like slumped, staring, <laughs> kind of like you zone out, right? But when you're there and you're moving around, potentially dancing, oh my gosh. Mm. Um, all those <laughs> sorts of like, all those sorts of small interactions I, I feel really builds up and it's like the physicality of it. So I, I suppose that's my favorite thing about being in person. Definitely. And I think I can agree with both of you. Um, I am a big fan of attending arts festivals, um, live musical performance, and even re- even like poetry recitals, that sort of thing. And I'm the exact same. I like that people around me are sharing that experience with me in their own way, um, allowing their creative sort of ideals gather. Um, keeping in mind all of that while we go through my tram thought, I myself, as I've said, love live entertainment of any kind. Um, so while in isolation, I've been really missing getting involved in the arts community in these ways. Um, I think this is actually one of the reasons I've taken it upon myself to get more creative while in isolation. I found, I think it's because I missed this, not because I've been bored, um, because my creative outlets have been taken away from me in the way that, cause I am not the most creative person. I can't sing, I can't, um, paint, but these are the things that I miss most, um, have you found yourselves appreciating art or creative practices more in isolation as seems to be the trend online, whether this is like drawing, writing, as you said, Edwin, the um, Jane Austen style that you're getting into anything like that. Have you, has this, do you think this would have happened without being pushed into an isolation atmosphere? Well, I'm reading again, so reading something that like school and education really took away from me because I just didn't have the time or mental space. Um, but mm. with isolation, I have been finding myself getting back into like reading media, things like comic books, looking into more new artists. So I, I do really think that's um, a key point. And I actually was like re- scrolling through, like looking for your tram thoughts. And there was um, a point that like Con from the ASRC made where he said like, how many people right now are nodding their head at how streaming movies, music and shows, listening to podcasts and reading books has been vital for your mental health during COVID-19. Mm. And his point was exa- exactly that. Like during COVID-19, we've needed distractions. We've needed mm. like sources of creativity. Um, and sorry, this has just been a quick tangent, but he actually brought up the fact that like um, the arts industry has to be, you know, attended to. And that's something that currently yeah. is excluded from our federal like support stimuluses within COVID-19. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that this uh, pandemic has given rise to like 
a much needed like aspect of like, okay, this is something that we need. <laughs> this yeah. is something that we really, really respond to and kind of go towards in times of, I don't know, like stress or mm. boredom or blah, 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 blah. And I think on building as well as, as much as art is also that appreciating other arts, it's creating your own. And I think mm. given the kind of context of COVID and everyone being more or less uh, in lockdown, there's, I mean, there's, there's often a sort of a fear associated of what if someone doesn't like my art or it's not good. Mm. And I feel like that's kind of gone out the window a little bit. Like I think like obviously the process of creating art, it's such an important outlet, particularly at a time like this. And given kind of everyone's doing it, it sort of means it doesn't really matter the uh, the sort of like quote unquote objective quality of it. It's it's more just about is it good for you and like yeah sure it go for it. But that doesn't matter if it's not quote unquote good art. Yeah. And I think that's something that's been really refreshing to see is less of that kind of judgment of just something that's a coping mechanism and something that's personal and just a, a way of getting things out of your body and your brain. That's true. Definitely. Also, can I jump on that? I don't think it's been as commercialized either. I think it's been like a lot of, I mean, we need to be supporting obviously people in our art industry and that is at the moment, unfortunately through individual donations rather than federal incentive as it really ought to be in my belief. But at the same time, like producing art doesn't come at like a, you don't need to produce art to create costs or, or to, you know, it, it, it's lost that commercialization or that sort of, you know, mm. financialization it, apart from obviously struggling artists and stuff like that, who, you know, I'm excluding from this, this little tramp bit. Yeah. Right? Also thing, like, In this comment. Uh, like, <laughs> just for saying before, like, uh, like I'm not a particularly creative person. And I think that kind of, overcomes that because it doesn't matter whatever you whatever like creativity technically means it's just if it's a process of you creating something and expressing something that's the important bit yeah well that's exactly what I was about to say like I have always found it so daunt like I would love to be an artist you know but it was always so daunting to me because I knew I didn't technically I didn't have those natural born skills so it would just be silly if I tried that but I think now a lot of people as you've both been saying feel that they can and they're sort of empowered to because there is a sense of achievement in being creative and it it is a mental relaxer to actually be creative and get that outlet out there um also with the federal government um obviously not backing the arts community we're going to touch on that now so with restrictions around the globe due to covid um, arts industries have been hit incredibly hard. Um, figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics have revealed that the arts sector has been hit by the nationwide lockdown. Um, the probably the hardest, um, with jobs in the arts and recreation industry down by 27%. Between This is between 14th of March and 18th of April. Um, wages between that same period dropped 17%. Um, in March, Green Senator Sarah Hansen-Young took aim at the federal government and its lack of support for the arts and entertainment industry um, after it was revealed that it was left out completely of the JobKeeper scheme, which is mm. just heartbreaking and it's just showing how little the government and Australia values its arts, arts community. Yeah, for a bit of stats here, it's like 193,000 Australian artists and yeah. more have been excluded from like JobKeeper and the arts community, I don't know if you've got this here as well, Jess, has called for like yeah. a $70 million package because that's what they're going to need to get back on their feet. Yeah, they're incredibly, they've been left behind and they've been pushed aside for more important sort of sectors for the government, the economy, and they think that the arts community has little to give to this um so venues obviously across the country are doing everything they can to stay afloat um 
with the new stage one, two and three coming in. Hopefully by July we'll see some change to this. Um, but it's Rob, you actually re- you tweeted this this week about Carriage Works, and um, they've been appointed the volunteer administrators. Um, so that was even even that sort of thing. Venues where artists can go back to after all this, they're they're closing also because they can't stay afloat. Um, with these continuous blows, the arts and entertainment industry has been getting as creative as ever with how to show their works to the world. Um, much similar to the virtual environment we touched on in previous tram thoughts, the arts entertainment industry has also taken up the opportunity to also join in on getting into the virtual world. Um, this has seen musicians um, getting creative with both free and paid online concerts um, on platforms like Zoom or FaceTime um, where you can listen with others while musicians play. Um, there's also been live readings with poetry events and even play recitals. Um, there's been comedians with interactive shows. The only downside is that no one knows when to laugh because there aren't prompts of where to laugh, so it's a bit awkward. <laughs> um, and on social media platforms, writers have actually been sending out newsletters with writing prompts to engage the creative writing community. And they've also been inter- interactive book clubs on social media platforms also. Um, so would you take part in any of these opportunities online? If you have the chance, if you have already, would you, any of these that I've listed, would you be interested in any of those continuing after, after this pandemic is over? Uh, oh, Rob, do you want to start? Yeah. I was going to say, um, this has been kind of, I've noticed uh, one of my writing collectives, which is the Penny Mint, uh, which is a cute little writing collective. They've been doing like live poetry readings and things like that. And I have actually been hooking into some of their videos or watching some of those because and I think I would be watching it after COVID-19 because I think it's a great accessibility point. I mean, I can't necessarily make it to Brunswick every Saturday, you know, going till 9 p.m. <laughs> but if yeah. I can watch the video, it's a great way of being able to like tune in, connect with my community, blah, blah, blah. So I, I think it's a great point. I, I, I do think it's, it's really given a rise to opportunities to seeing how we can present things in different formats so people can access it better or more readily. Um, that, would, that would probably be where I say with that one. That, that's been my experience. Live music, I've watched a little bit of live music um, mm. over video. I don't know if it quite captures the same, but then again, it might just be developing how they are videoing it or what they're doing within that, yeah, that, that sort of space. So it might just be yeah. then trial and erroring. I think it's a, it's a sort of a, yeah, it is definitely a trial and error and a process of evolution within um, how artists can continue this online. Cause I think it will benefit them incredibly in the future. Also, if this continues, what about you, I Rob? I would like, I would agree with everything that you both said. I, I would say for me, it's a, it's a compliment, but not a, it doesn't replace. Like, I mm. think it, it, it's good as a sort of, like, as you say, for accessibility issues or mm. geographical issues or whatever it may be, it's a good, um, uh, tool and sort of like a way to make it as accessible as possible. Um, but it's kind of like, as I was saying before, there is an energy and a charisma that we go to gigs and it's interesting. Like, why do we go to a gig as opposed to just listening to the albums? Obviously because the experience of the concert has something. Yeah. Maybe you think about an interesting comparison with like film, because technically it is the same product <laughs> when you go to a cinema, regardless, except for the quality of the setup, it's the same thing that you're watching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's because there is something more wholesome about sharing an experience with other people that you may not even know, but it's just to know that you shared 
that experience and it wasn't just you that felt something it was mm-hmm. not you just being crazy it's there's other people felt it and so it kind of made me wondering like this kind of this aspect of tribalism that this sort of because obviously the entertainment we watch is quite personal and it's you know deeply reflects what we're interested in and what kind of characterizes us and so I feel like by going it to a, an event with other people it sort of it creates a sort of sense of other people enjoy the same entertainment as I do. And that validates my identity and I feel connected mm-hmm. to something. Um, so that actually, I think is actually one of the really important reasons for, for live entertainment is that social aspect to it. Definitely. I think it's an incredibly vital part and that's probably my only issue with, I would die if um, I could never go to a live event again. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's great that they are, branching out, being more creative in how to be creative. Um, but I agree with you, Rob. Um, I'm still going to go to those live events even after this. And if I do continue to compliment non compliment non-replacements is a good way of looking at it. And I suppose it's also yeah. like, as we see this evolution, it'll be really exciting to see what really does work online or, or you know, yeah. virtually and what doesn't. And it, that might be, for example, like something I get really frustrated with, frustrated with at live events is things like Q&A right and it, like it can get really annoying when you're on a panel and you're watching Q&A and people haven't thought of questions or the, the this, you know it doesn't quite work so maybe what you do is have speeches done and then you have Q&A and people send in their Q&A and they do that as a recorded thing or, or something like that like I could see that potentially working better than in real life so it's a question of like what works what doesn't what can you capture through the video and what do you need, as um, Rob said, <laughs> what do you need to like share or bask in others, yeah. you know, emotions with? Um, I think yeah, that's, a, that's a good point. Yeah. Just the good things coming out of this pandemic. Well, mm. that is all for my triumph thought guys. So we'll be hitting up another song, a few more community announcements and getting into the end of our show. So here you are. Too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. 
brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going, you know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there. As prisoners, we can't blame everything on the external. So let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here, and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have a speech from Shutas Kartanatu, an Indigenous environmental activist and youth director of Earth Guardians. Let's have a listen. Buenos dias. Good morning, everybody. My name is Shutes Katonatiu. I'm very, very honored to be here today. I think it's amazing to look around the world and see almost 200 countries represented here today because it's really going to take united action from all of us in order to make a difference. I'm 15 years old, and I'm the youth director of an organization called Earth Guardians, and I'm working with young people around the planet to protect our earth, our air, our water, and our atmosphere for my generation and those to follow. I stand before you today representing my entire generation. As well as generations unborn, I stand before you representing the indigenous peoples of this earth and those that will inherit the effects of our climate crisis that we face today as a global community. My father raised me in the Mexica tradition I learned from my father that all life is sacred. He showed me that every living thing is connected because we all draw life from the same earth and we all drink from the same waters. I was raised in the ceremonies of my people, learning the dances, the songs, and the language that was passed on to me by my my people, by my ancestors. And what I learned from my cultural heritage is that this life is a gift. And it is our responsibility to respect and protect that which gives us life. So I began to to look at the world around me and begin to learn about the issues that we are facing. And I saw that we were facing a crisis that was beginning to affect every living system on our planet. I saw that climate change was going to be the defining issue of our time. Seeing this world, seeing my world collapsing around me pushed me into action. So for the last nine years, since I was six years old, I've been on the front lines of climate and environmental movements, standing up to fight for my future and for our planet. What a lot of people fail to see or simply ignore is that climate change isn't an issue that is far off in the future. It isn't solely affecting the ice caps and the poles or the sea level rise in our oceans. It's affecting us right here, right now, and will only continue to get worse. In a three-month period... My family and I, we witnessed the greatest wildfires and the worst floods we've ever seen in Colorado history. 
frequency and severity of massive storms and massive floods, massive superstorms are increasing all over the planet because of our lack of action and because of the increase in carbon dioxide emissions, because of the way that we are living. And because of this, young people are standing up all over the planet because we see that climate change is a human rights issue. It is affecting especially developing countries, women, children, and people of color more than anything else. We have to realize that what is at stake is no longer just the planet, is no longer just the environment, but what's at stake right now is the existence of my generation. What is at stake right now, what we are fighting to protect, what is in your hands, what is in our hands today, is the survival of this generation and the continuation of the human race. That is what is at stake. So youth are standing up all over the planet to find solutions to the issues that will be left to my generation. Earth Guardian crews are starting up all over the planet and youth are using their passions to address some of the greatest issues of our time by planting seeds of solutions that can change the world. Over 400,000 people marched through the streets of New York City in the greatest climate march in the history of the world. More than 220 institutions have divested from fossil fuels with the help of student-led movements. And that number continues to grow. Youth like myself across the United States are suing our state and federal governments, demanding them to take action on climate change immediately. We are flooding the streets and we are now flooding the courts to show the world that there is a movement on the rise and that our generation is at the front of that movement fighting for the solutions that we need, and we need you to help us. We are approaching 21 years of United Nations climate talks, and in the last 20 years of negotiations, almost no agreements have been made on a bonding climate recovery plan. Our window of opportunity to take action is shrinking as the problem exponentially increases. We need you to take action at COP21 before it's too late. Because as I said, what's at stake right now is the future of your children, our children, my children, our grandchildren. When we look into our eyes, we see the next generation. And we see that that is the planet that we are leaving to them. We look at the world and we see the planet that we will leave to our generation. So don't be afraid to dream big. Because not only is it possible to get off of fossil fuels, but it is already happening. Cities and countries around the planet are committing to go 100% renewable in the first half of the century. The Pope himself called for a shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy. The solutions are here, and with them are coming millions of jobs and economic opportunities. Imagine if we took all the money that we are pouring into the fossil fuel industry and into the nuclear industry and put that into renewables. Imagine what we could accomplish. Phasing out fossil fuels is a dream that is slowly becoming a reality. And the question is, will it happen fast enough to avoid further climate catastrophe? It's time to look to the skies for the solutions that we need. Because the future of energy is no longer down a hole. We need to reconnect with the earth and end this mindset that we have that we can take whatever we want without ever giving back or understanding the harm that we are doing to the planet. It's this mindset of destruction, of greed, that is tearing apart our planet. We need to change the fundamental beliefs of our entire society. We have to remember 
that we are all indigenous to this earth and that we are all connected. Every generation leaves a mark on this planet. We leave something behind to be remembered by and we are at a tipping point right now where we will either be remembered as the generation that destroyed the planet, as a generation that put profits before future, or as a generation that united to address the greatest issue of our time by changing our relationship with the earth. We are being called upon to use our courage, our innovation, our creativity, and our passion to bring forth a new world. So in the light of this collapsing world that we see, what better time to be born than now? What better time to be alive than now? Because this generation, the people in this room right here, we get to change the course of history. Humans have created the greatest crisis that we see on the planet. And the greater the challenge, the higher we will rise to overcome it. We need you to stand with us. Never before has there been such a unifying issue as climate change. And it is time now to set aside everything that divides us. Everything that separates us. Everything that makes us want to point a finger at someone else and throw the problem to them. Who will stand with me now for mine and future generations to inherit a healthy, just, and sustainable planet? Who will stand with me now? The hope of this planet, of this generation, is in our hands. I don't want you to stand up for us. I want you to stand up with us. Because together we can change the world. And it's not going to be easy. But it is our responsibility. We owe it to future generations to be the leaders of today so that they can have a tomorrow. Thank you. Truth is all these rhymes Barely hold me together But I still try To bear it through the bad weather Winter's hosting So Stay.